You're listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. In this podcast series, we bring international affairs expertise from Stanford's campus straight to you. The changing nature of modern conflict requires a new look at the way we conduct ourselves in war, and indeed, what the concept of war even means. In November 2016, FSI scholars Scott Sagan, Joe Felter, and Paul Wise discussed the issue of ethics in war at a meeting of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. They were introduced by Stanford's new president, Mark Tessier-Levine. Good evening and and welcome. For those of you I haven't met, I'm Mark Tessier-Levine, the uh, president of Stanford, and I'm delighted to welcome you uh, to the university. Uh, Before I get started, I do want to uh, acknowledge and recognize my predecessor, John Hennessy, uh, who's in the back there, and uh, he'll give me uh, feedback later on how I'm doing. Uh, It's uh, it's always great to have John here. Uh, We're very pleased to host this meeting of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Uh, I understand that the Academy usually holds one of its stated meetings here in the fall, and we're so pleased uh, to welcome you back again this year. Uh, I also extend a warm welcome to my fellow faculty members, uh, students, and friends from the Stanford community. For more than 235 years, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences has advanced knowledge across all disciplines and shaped the intellectual landscape of this nation. Uh, As we know, it's one of the oldest and most prestigious learned societies, and membership is a tremendous honor. Um, I was deeply honored uh, when I was elected to the Academy in 2013, and as president of Stanford, I find it very gratifying that the university is so well represented. Uh, Today, more than 240 of Stanford's faculty are elected members of the Academy, which is an extraordinary number and speaks to the the quality and depth of talent uh, on our faculty. The American Academy advances the discussion of ideas on critical issues, and there are few more critical than the topic of today's discussion, the ethical choices in war and peace. And it seems especially appropriate uh, that this stated meeting is being held here at Stanford, uh, since uh, three of Stanford, uh, 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 the Stanford faculty members on today's panel, uh, Professors Scott Sagan, uh, uh, Joe Felter, and Paul Weiss, have essays in the fall 2016 and the forthcoming winter 2017 special issues of Daedalus, uh, which as we all know is the journal of the Academy. Uh, Today's conversation will give us a sneak preview of their essays on the challenges regarding ethics and war and increase the dialogue on this enormously important and complex topic. I know that everyone's looking forward to the discussion, so I'll turn the program over to Jonathan Fanton, the president of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, who will tell us more about the Academy and its project on ethics, technology, and war. Please join me in welcoming Jonathan Fanton. Thank you. Well, thank you, uh, President uh, Tessia Levine, uh, for joining us and for welcoming us to, uh, to Stanford. It's always nice to be here, and it really feels like coming home uh, uh, every fall. Um, so it's my uh, pleasure to welcome you and to call to order the 2047th stated meeting of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. So this year we had the privilege of electing uh, six uh, Stanford faculty members to the Academy's 2016 class, bringing the total members, uh, at least by our count, to 264. Uh, And I want to begin by welcoming one of those new members who I believe is here, um, Elizabeth McGill, Dean of the uh, Stanford uh, Law School. Uh, 
Is she here yet? But anyway, she's coming, and uh, we will uh, be very pleased to honor her when she comes. Uh, beyond an honorary society, the Academy has used its convening ability to bring members and experts from uh, all different disciplines and professions together on critical issues, uh, both immediate issues but also longer term, more theoretical issues. Um, and we uh, pride ourselves not just in being a society that honors each other, but as a society, as the Charter says, founded to advance the common good. And so our hope is to do studies that will give good advice not only to our own government, but really to uh, the international community as well. Uh, let me just mention a few of our recent uh, activities. Uh, we have a new initiative called the Public Face of Science, which is examining how public trust or mistrust in science is shaped by individual experiences, beliefs, exposure to media reports on scientific discoveries, including um, conversations on uh, digital media. Another project uh, is uh, on uh, the future of undergraduate education. Uh, and that's examining how Americans receive their post-secondary education and looking at a whole range of options, uh, not just uh, places like Stanford, but community colleges, um, for-profit schools, online providers, uh, asking questions such as, uh, uh, why does it cost so much? Uh, what's the true picture of uh, financial aid? And the answer is better than you think. Um, are we preparing young people for uh, the um, life that they're going to live and the jobs uh, they're going to have. Um, that report uh, will be out probably uh, uh, mid-next year. In addition to these large commissions and projects, we also have what we call an exploratory fund where any member, including any of you, can simply write me a letter and say, here's an issue uh, that I want to talk to other members and experts about. Uh, give you an example, our very first meeting last year, John Levy, chair of the Legal Services Corporation and Harvard Law Dean Martha Minow, both concerned about legal, uh, services, uh, access to legal services for low-income Americans. Uh, it's a shocking number, really, that 80% of uh, low-income Americans who turn to legal, uh, legal aid offices for assistance get turned away. Uh, and so we had a meeting of 50 uh, jurists, uh, legal aid advocates, uh, scholars, uh, talked about the problem and decided that we were going to try to do something about it. And so there'll be a follow-up uh, group uh, meeting now to chart a course to uh, be sure that uh, at least many more Americans who need uh, legal assistance can get it. We also have a long history uh, in the field of international uh, security studies, uh, going back uh, to the 19, early 1960s, uh, an issue of Daedalus, uh, that uh, a number of um, important people, including Henry Kissinger, contributed to really uh, uh, crafted the concept of uh, strategic stability. And that issue of Daedalus was referred to by President Kennedy uh, as the Bible of uh, arms control. And continuing in this uh, important tradition, um, the Academy uh, continues to take on uh, uh, thorny issues uh, that are at a moment where they need to be rethought. Um, and we're here tonight to um, talk about a project uh, under the leadership of uh, Scott Sagan to examine how the changing character of warfare and the deployment of new military technologies affect the moral and legal behavior of nations during war. 
And Scott, on behalf of the Academy, I want to thank you not only for your role in leading this project, but for all the many ways in which you strengthen the Academy and make us a really important community. Uh, the Academy uh, has commissioned 24 essays uh, to scholars, practitioners, former government officials, military officers. That's published uh, in a double issue of Daedalus, and you'll see on the way out uh, the first uh, copy, and we uh, urge you to take it, and the second uh, edition will be out in January. Uh, this evening, we have the privilege to hear directly from three of our uh, contributors about their scholarship and their views on the principal cha uh, changes occurring in the moral and legal framework that governs contemporary uh, warfare. The deployment of new technologies might be worrisome in some cases, but on the other hand, it has led to a revival of ethical discussions around war and its nature. And I think uh, those discussions are both timely and, and, and welcome. And I'll give you as an example in a recent statement that was read during the Vienna Conference on the Humanitarian Consequences of Nuclear Weapons, Pope Francis had this to say, and I quote, now more than ever, technological, social, and political interdependence urgently calls for an ethic of solidarity, which encourages people to work together for a more secure world and a future that is increasingly rooted in moral values and responsibility on a global scale. So the relationship between technology and ethics is going to be central, I think, as a question for discussion over the coming years. Uh, and I think this is therefore a very uh, timely moment for us to uh, be having, uh, undertaking a study that's going to be, I think, immensely helpful uh, in shaping that uh, discussion. So let me now give the floor to Professor uh, Deborah Satz, uh, who will chair tonight's uh, session. She is the uh, Martha Sutton Weeks Professor of Ethics in Society here at Stanford, author of numerous books and articles about ethical issues, including Why Some Things Should Not Be For Sale, The Moral Limits of Markets. Uh, she's also an outstanding teacher and was a recipient of uh, Stanford's highest teaching award, the uh, Walter uh, Gores uh, Award in uh, 2004. Uh, take it away, Deborah. Okay, welcome everybody. Can I, everybody hear me? Okay, welcome. Um, and thanks to the um, Academy for sponsoring tonight's event. So we're living at a time when technological and social changes have put tremendous pressure on our ordinary ethical concepts. Common sense morality tends to favor near effects over far ones. The present seems more real than the future, or as the economist uh, Shackelberg once said, tomorrow's hunger can't be felt today. And it favors individual effects over group effects. We see our own agency as less implicated when many people, of whom we're only one, produce an outcome than when we produce that outcome alone. Now this privileging of the near over the distant and the individual over the group makes a lot of sense when we, if we keep in mind that our common sense morality was developed in the context of interactions between small groups of individuals. But as the world becomes an increasingly crowded place, as technological advances make a communication and interaction across borders easier, as institutions like markets link the lives of millions, if not billions, of people around the world, 
and as the effects on the, that we have on the natural environment stretch into the distant future, this view of individual responsibility is under pressure. So consider, I can't make sense of my obligation to diminish global warming from the perspective of my immediate and individually produced effect on the atmosphere, since this is completely negligible. At the same time, and I can't argue this here, but I will state it, <laughs> longer discussion, there's no obvious alternative to our ordinary understanding of individual responsibility. Indeed, the competing tendencies in our world between greater economic and political integration on the one hand and greater ethnic national identification on the other are to my mind symptomatic of the instability in our current thinking about responsibility. Who these days is my neighbor? We're living through what the historian Eric Hobsbawm has called, quote, one of the most rapid and profound upheavals of human life in recorded history, close quote. Few areas of life have been untouched by these upheavals, and it's no surprise that our ethical concepts are also not untouched by these upheavals. And that brings me to tonight's uh, panel discussion. War is one of the most consequential arenas in which our technological and social circumstances have created new moral dilemmas. Now, there's, of course, a long tradition of ethical thinking dating back to the Mahabharata in India and to St. Augustine in the West, which lays down the rules of just war. This is a rich and honorable tradition, but none of the writers in this tradition envision drone warfare or the use of autonomous robots more generally or the phenomena of asymmetric warfare or the development of nuclear weapons. The concepts and principles we've inherited from just war theory, which is now our common sense thinking about the rules of war, of the rules in war and the rules of going to war, those principles and concepts like proportionality and the principle of distinction, the injunction to minimize collateral damage and the prohibition on intentionally killing civilians, the moral equality of all soldiers fighting in a conflict regardless of which side they are on, all of these are under pressure today. What, for example, can the prohibition on the intentional killing of civilians mean in the context of nuclear weapons? What difference does a uniform make to the rights of combatants? The technology of war now makes possible immense damages with repercussions across time and space. As citizens, as soldiers in the field of battle, and as members of a fragile global community, we face in war difficult and sometimes agonizing choices. Some of these choices challenge our inherited and common sense moral ideas. To address these requires input from many disciplines and perspectives, not just philosophers, um, although philosophers are hard at work at this. Each of our panelists tonight attempts to make progress where some aspect of our accepted theory of just war runs into difficulty or requires some rethinking, some rejiggering, or perhaps just some recommitment. Because you have their bios in your programs 
and because their accomplishments are too long to read out anyway, I'll just introduce them by their name and their very brief title. I have to say I've had the pleasure of working with all three panelists um, on a project on ethics and war several years ago, and I can assure you, you're in for an intellectual treat that is also a serious engagement with ideas that matter. So our panelists, in order of their speaking, are Scott Sagan, the Carolyn Monroe Professor of Political Science, followed by Joe Felter, Senior Research Scholar at the Center for International Security and Cooperation, followed by Paul Wise, the Richard Berman <laughs> Professor of Child Health and Society. They'll all um, stay in their seats, come up to speak, and then return to their seats until the very end of their presentations because of the PowerPoint. Um, after they all return to the, come to the podium, we'll have a discussion. And I look forward to the presentations and to our discussion. So thank you. Thank you, Deborah. Um, in his historic May 2016 speech in Hiroshima, President Barack Obama highlighted the need to strengthen the institutions that govern, however imperfectly, the initiation, conduct, and aftermath of war. The speech marked the first time a sitting American president had visited Hiroshima, a city that the United States had destroyed in August 1945 with a single atomic bomb, killing well over 100,000 men, women, and children. Obama ended his speech with a call for new institutions to address the destructive power of nuclear weapons. Hiroshima teaches this truth, he said, technological progress without the equivalent progress in human institutions can doom us. Well, the American Academy over the past two years has brought together a remarkable and diverse group of scholars and practitioners to analyze and address the challenges and the institutions institutions including intellectual constructs, rules of engagement, um, different legal and organizational mechanisms that address dilemmas of technology, ethics, and war. And I'm really appreciative of the opportunity to have spent the last two years with a group of leading just war thinkers at meetings here at Stanford, at the Academy, and at West Point. We had political scientists and physical scientists, physicians, and philosophers, lawyers, historians, statesmen, soldiers, even a pilot and a poet. And while we did not try to, as a study, come up with one consensus of position, I think we improved all of our arguments and really helped each other understand the, the dilemmas. And that's important because the kind of progress in human institutions that President Obama called for um, really will not come about unless soldiers and statesmen and soldiers, scholars and citizens alike are engaged in a debate. War is too important, Clemenceau once famously noted during World War I. War is too important to be left to the generals. Just war doctrine is too important to be left to the philosophers and the political theorists. And I hope the debate that we're beginning tonight and that we'll be seeing emerging through these deadless issues will encourage many scholars and citizens to join in a debate about what kinds of institutions should we have. I'll be discussing two issues in my remarks, issues that I care about deeply and that I address in the Daedalus volumes and other work. We have never had a president in my 
memory who cared as much about justice and questions of ethics and war as Barack Obama. Indeed, he took advantage of his Nobel Peace Prize to talk about just war doctrine. And he spoke at West Point in 2014, saying that we should uphold standards that reflect our values, even in warfare. And that means taking stri strikes only when we face a continuing imminent threat, and only when there's no near certainty of no civilian casualties, because we must not create more enemies than we take off the battlefield. As you see in the quote here, he actually also told the US military that even in planning nuclear weapons strikes, you must always follow the fundamental principles of the laws of armed conflict, talking about distinction, proportionality, and minimizing collateral damage. Now, in the piece that Jeffrey Lewis and I researched and wrote for Daedalus called The Principle of Necessity, we note that military organizations are better than most organizations at following orders. They are also better than most organizations in creatively interpreting the guidelines that they are given to fit their biases and fit their standard operating procedures to get their job done. And what we have discovered is that, and what we argue in this piece, is that that report on nuclear employment strategy of the United States has created some pushback behind the scenes that you can observe if you look at some of the laws and practices that have changed. So for example, the new Department of Defense Protection of Civilian Population and Civilian Projected Objects states, civilian populations and civilian projected objects may not be intentionally targeted, as the President is saying, but there are exceptions to the rule, it says. Civilian objects consist of civilian property and activities other than those used to support or sustain warfighting capability, acts of violence solely intended to spread fear among civilian population are prohibited. Solely intended. If you intend to do something else, but this is a side benefit, they're suggesting in a legal document that that's okay. Moreover, there have been two new definitions in the legal mechanism that has been used to support this document. The official statement of a military objective now includes, and I quote, its future intended or potential military use. And the example given of a legitimate military target is a civilian airport. Because a civilian airport, while it is not used as a military facility, could be used. So the new law or the new regulation that the Department of Defense is following says that that is okay. It's a war target. And they have changed the definition of a legitimate target from a war supporting industry to a war sustaining industry. And a war sustaining industry opens up a whole new set of targets. Now, the reasons why this was done, in part to fight ISIS, so you can attack military sustaining industries like an oil refinery, but it opens up for the strategic command all sorts of new targets. So we argue in our piece that nuclear weapons should follow a principle of nuclear necessity and they should never be targeted at any target that we can have a reasonable chance of destroying with conventional weapons. 
and we lay out the argument, and I've been pleased with both the Daedalus article reception and a Washington Post um, op-ed piece summarizing the argument that has created both consternation among some in Washington who have said, that would destroy deterrence, that would be a horrible thing, and other people have said, well, of course we do that already. And if there's that much disagreement within the Beltway, it strikes me that we need to have a more open and transparent debate, a debate that will place conventional weaponry at the heart of our deterrent debate, a place where our principles surely belong. So that's the one first piece of news, is that the military is still wrestling with these issues and that we need to have, be much more transparent in how we think about them. The second piece of, I think, bad news is that we now know a lot about the American public's views on this issue. Every August, there's a poll that comes out showing what the American public thinks about the attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And it showed over time a drop from, say, 85% support in 1945 to 44% today. Many people have argued that that shows that there's a nuclear taboo among the public and or even a, a, a internalized view about the principles of non-combatant immunity being important. But it occurs to me and my co-author, uh, Ben Valentino, that we can't tell from that data whether people have changed their views about Japan, who's now an ally and friend of ours, or about nuclear weapons. Moreover, it doesn't put people in a situation where they think about a trade-off between US troops dying and killing enemy civilians, or neutral civilians. So we conducted a series of experiments, a survey experiment, where we asked a um, sample of the American public, representative sample of the American public, in different control groups to read a story about Iran, a story that was created to try to simulate the situation of 1945. Iran is accused of violating the Iran deal. We put on sanctions, as we did in 1940-41. The Iranians respond by attacking a US ship carrying 2,403 people, just the same number that died at Pearl Harbor. President declares war. Congress declares war. He calls for unconditional surrender. And then he is asked and told that we have two ways of winning this war. We can either drop a bomb on the second largest city in Iran, killing 100,000 people, or we can continue the invasion and get to Tehran. We can win either way, but we'll lose 20,000 troops, fewer than we anticipated in 1945. And then we varied, for experimental purposes, the number of people killed, having another one that had 2 million people killed, still with 20,000, and had a third experiment in which 100,000 are killed, but it's conventional. We're not dropping a nuclear weapon, we're just killing 100,000 people conventionally. And the results I found disturbing. Rather than that 44%, we found 60% of the public supported, uh, approved of an airstrike that would kill 100,000 people with a single nuclear weapon. Even when you increased it to 2 million, 60% still <coughs> approved of it. And a blow against the idea that maybe non-combatant immunity is a hard, even more people preferred it if it was done conventionally than if it was done with nuclear weapons. There may be some aversion to using nuclear weapons, but not less to killing 100,000 people with conventional weapons. 
So I'll conclude there saying that that, to me, was a very disturbing finding about how much more work we need to do in this area because of the concerns of the public who has a norm against protecting American troops, even at very high proportionality uh, levels. Um, I noted in a Wall Street Journal article that summarized uh, this that what this suggests to me, we don't know from this data what a president might do in a situation like this, but we do know that the public is unlikely to constrain any American president who's considering using nuclear weapons in the crucible of war. I'll conclude there and turn it over to Joe Felter. All right, thank you, Scott. It's tough to follow Scott Sagan um, in any, any environment. But uh, uh, first of all, I just want to thank Jonathan and the American Academy for this great opportunity, this great privilege. Uh, I would never imagine I'd be um, part of a, an organization and an effort like this, and especially Scott Sagan, who several years ago, uh, when I was in mid-tour leave from Afghanistan, I encouraged me to consider a transition to, to Stanford and academia. And I certainly appreciate that, the great opportunities that that's, uh, that's come with that, Scott. So if, uh, if you like this research, please thank Scott. And if you don't, uh, it's, it's really my responsibility. So. Um, so I'm going to start out by embarrassing Scott by trying something a little unconventional. I'm going to start with a little thought experiment to get everyone's frame of mind here. So imagine that you are a 22-year-old platoon leader just a few months out of West Point. Okay, you're in Afghanistan, southern, southern Afghanistan, Kandahar, a small village there. You're on a presence patrol. And your, patrol, your platoon starts taking fire, and you're separated in, in, in different squads. Um, and uh, your platoon sergeant, who's a senior NCO, has, has the respect and admiration of, of the entire platoon. Multiple combat tours, just revered by everyone. Uh, he calls you on the radio and says, hey, we're taking fire. We need to drop a, a joint, a JDAM, a, a, a basically a precision-guided bomb onto this building that we're taking fire from and, and neutralize the threat. And he's just basically expecting you to say, roger that, sergeant. Let's, let's go for it. Um, but you delay. You delay a little bit because you don't know what the right thing to do. You've been in this village before. You know that's a compound that's, that's occupied normally by you know, an, ex, an extended Afghan family. Um, on the same transmission, your platoon sergeant says, hey, and by the way, we've got two wounded in action, one seriously. What are we going to do, lieutenant? Um, we, they continue to take sporadic fire from the compound. Um, and your platoon sergeant says, hey, any, if we tie our hands any longer, we're going to lose half the platoon, lieutenant. What are you going to do? So all eyes are on you. Imagine yourself in this situation. Um, while everyone's waiting for a response. You know the building has got civilians. There's a good chance that there's non-combatants in the building. The building. Um, you know that, but you also know that you've had guidance from your battalion commander, your company commander, even a four-star general back in Kabul, General McChrystal, who says, hey, this is, the, this is a counterinsurgency fight where the, the relationship with the population, the information flows, the, the, your relationship with the population is important. Um, therefore, we want you to do all you can to limit civilian casualties and protect the, the population from harm. So we want you to refrain from using these types of munitions like aerial delivery munitions, indirect fire munitions on, on a target like, like this if you think there may be a civilian casualties at risk. And then your platoon sergeant breaks in again on the road and says, oh, by the way, Private Jones, the, the wounded in action, he just, he just died. And we just took two more wounded. Okay, so imagine yourself in this situation. Again, you're 22, um, you're under a lot of pressure, and you've got to make a gut-wrenching decision. Okay, so what are you going to do? Imagine what are you going to do. Um, I'd say you've got about three, three, three big options here. Um, one, drop the bomb, okay? It's, it's actually consistent with the laws of land warfare. You're under attack, you're taken under, under fire, you're losing, you, you need to protect yourself. Drop the bomb. Okay, that's one option. That would make you a hero with your platoon. You realize, I don't have to write those letters home to any more of, of my soldiers' uh, parents or, or loved ones if, if they perish. Um, 
Um, but there may be civilians trapped inside, and you know that uh, you may put them at risk. Um, or second option, you can lead your platoon into an old school fire maneuver onto the building, clear the building with direct fire weapons where there's a lot, lar much larger percentage chance that you won't engage non-combatants. You can neutralize a threat, but you're putting your platoon at much greater risk, and not to mention yourself. Um, last option, just back off, leave, okay? Let, let, let the Taliban get away, live to fight another day. Face your platoon sergeant and, and your, your soldiers who just lost some of their comrades and say, hey, let them go. Um, They'll live to fight another day, and you can deal with, uh, with the platoon looking like you let them get away without avenging the death of our, of our brothers in arms. So what should you do? You know, there's been a lot of work by members of the academy that you can kind of sit here in the ivory tower and almost methodically figure out what you should do. Um, but I ask you this question. Try to put yourself in this position. What would you do? Okay? And let me bring in something that Deborah Satt said early on. Um, you know, the present seems a lot more real than the future, okay? Your present is pretty tough. It's chaos, it's fear, it's, it's every visceral motion in your body says, protect my soldiers, protect myself, drop the bomb. Okay, does that thought experiment? Because that's, that's kind of where we are. Um, now, use and bellow laws of armed conflict, it requires us to take measures to protect civilians. You, and it also requires us to, to exercise restraint, accept risk to protect non-combatants. And I would argue that's always a moral imperative, always a moral imperative in any conflict. And the argument we try to make with my co-author Jake Shapiro in this, this paper is it's not only a moral imperative, but an asymmetric conflict like counterinsurgency where the information you get from the civilian population is key to many things, like knowing where the enemy is so you can target them effectively. In those types of conflicts, exercising restraint, reducing civilian casualties, it's part of winning, okay? And, that, and that's, the, that's the, the argument we try to prove in, in, in our research for, for this, this publication. Now, when General Stanley McChrystal showed up at the International Security and Assistance Force um, in command of ISAF in 2009, this is how he felt. He said, we've got to protect the population. We've got to limit civilian casualties because that's the only way we're going to make progress, only way we're going to win in this, in this fight. So he made a lot of concerted efforts to limit civilian casualties. He developed a, a revised tactical directive where he spelled out he said, you, we're not denying you the, right, the ability to defend yourself and protect yourself, but we are encouraging you to use restraint, to avoid using types of weapon systems that are more likely to create civilian casualties if civilians are president. He did a number of other things. He, he rewrote a driving directive so people weren't running people over on the roads. He, he, wrote, he had us write an escalation of force standard operating procedure where imagine you're at a checkpoint, the types of things you're allowed to do as far as firing warning shots and when you can engage a vehicle. Again, all requiring soldiers to take more risk in the interest of, of not harming civilians that um, managed to, to get in the way. And he developed a, a concept, which is what we highlighted in our, in our article, called courageous restraint. Um, with, the, with the notion that, hey, we reward soldiers for bravery in combat. If, if the outcome we want is restraint because it's part of winning, why don't we reward soldiers for exercising restraint? And it was courageous restraint. You get what you reward. In this case, General McChrystal and his leaders thought, let's, let's start rewarding restraint. Wasn't real popular with some of the folks uh, in the military who thought that was just almost an abomination. Like, you know, we're rewarding soldiers for not fighting. What, what are we going to get? Um, but so that I was in Afghanistan at the time, and, and my mission was to both educate and almost sell this strategy to, to these deployed forces around the theater. And educate meaning like, explain what it was and what it wasn't. Like, hey, we are asking you to exercise restraint. We're not asking you to tie your hands behind your back. We're saying if you can use another option then, then, that, that will safeguard the lives of civilians, then you should do it. Um, and we also had to sell it by saying, and you should do it not just because it's the right thing to do, which is important. 
it's, it's morally correct, and, and we are a, you know, a, a military, the U.S. military, that, that, that takes that seriously. But it's part of winning. Um, and I tell you, it was, it was a tough sell in, in theater. Um, but there were a lot of examples of, of how exercising would say not only was a morally correct thing to do, but it actually resulted in you know, success on the battlefield. And this is where I'm going to try to figure out my slides here. Here's a, this, is a, this is a slide that I, I, literally, I briefed to, to General McChrystal in, in January 2010, soon after I got there, an incident that occurred in uh, Hellman, down in, or actually in Garmshire, near Hellman, with a, a, a Marine battalion. Um, in this case, these Marines were surrounded by angry locals because a, a, a rumor had gotten out that the Marines had defaced a Quran, which is, is pr pretty egregious in, in, in that culture. They surrounded the platoon, and they started throwing rocks at them, bricks at them. Um, you can see one Marine got hit right in the face. Um, our rules of engagement authorized them to use force, deadly force, but they didn't. They, they held back, they held their ground, and then, fortunately, they, it, was, it turned out that the people realized, hey, this was a the rumor was planted by the Taliban. It wasn't true, and, 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 the, um, and the villagers dispersed. Um, so I, their courageous restraint, if you will, may, was responsible for making sure a bad situation didn't, didn't get any worse you know, and, and result in civilian casualties. So again, this is a good news story in itself. Civilians were not put at, put at risk, um, but, there, but I think there's more to it. This, this unit, and we measured this, they had the highest rate of tips that led to uh, finding improvised explosive devices and clearing them. And what that means is, you know, civilians say, hey, around the corner, buried right in this location, there, there's, there's a bomb that they planted to kill you. And it takes a lot of trust and cooperation from the, from the local population to get those tips. This unit had the highest tip rate in theater during, during this time. And this, this example of courageous strain isn't the only time that they, they exercise this. Um, so, so that was good. Um, and we, we uh, when, I, when we had other other examples of this as well, um, we even had empirical evidence. Um, I brought my uh, invited my co-author Jake Shapiro, who, who, who Scott Sagan was his advisor in the PhD program here. He came. He was a professor at Princeton. He came out to Afghanistan because uh, we said, "Hey, everyone has this gut feeling that that civilian casualties results in a in a bad relationship with the population, which which makes it hard to win, which makes it hard to get information, which makes it hard to make any progress at all." Um, so we actually were able to collect evidence and. Here's a name you might recognize. Uh, General McChrystal's um, chief of intelligence, Major General Mike Flynn, decided, hey, this, this, is, um, this is important. I'm going to declassify the uh, civilian casualty information so you can do this study. And we greatly appreciated that. So we, we did an empirical study that where we could actually see that a civilian casualty incident resulted in increased attacks at the district level in, in Afghanistan for a three-week period if it was um, ISAF caused, and it, was, it resulted in a one-week increase in violence, even if it was Taliban caused, because we found with anecdotal evidence that you know, the people blame us for the attack anyways, because if we weren't there, the Taliban wouldn't be attacking them in the first place. So we were punished whether it was U.S. or Taliban caused uh, civilian casualty incident that, that resulted in more violence. Um, we were able to put this brief together, and we briefed General McChrystal, and I tell you, it was almost cathartic for, for General McChrystal. This is what he had been saying and messaging for, for, for months since he took command, that we're not going to win if we, if, we, if we don't protect the population, if we kill civilians. And we were able to show empirically that, in fact, your gut feeling is, is borne out in the evidence. And I remember him, he literally, it just out, you know, Literally 100 outstations, both in Afghanistan, Europe, NATO, the U.S., the Pentagon. He tapped his microphone and said, I want everyone to look at this. This is what I've been talking about for months. We've got to protect the population and stop harming civilians. Um, so that was my epiphany. And, and Scott, this is just before I came back on mid toward leave and realized, well, you can make a difference as, as a scholar just as much as you can as a soldier, in some cases more. Um, 
So um, other empirical evidence, it's not just Afghanistan. My, my co-author Jake Shapiro and one of his research assistants, Andrew Shaver, did a study um, in, in, in Iraq. Um, and here's some, some preliminary results. This is gonna come out in the Journal of Conflict Resolution here in a few months. Um, but these, these results show the weekly flow of tips provided to coalition forces in Iraq um, from, local, from the local province, or, from the local province by province for about a 60 week period um, in June 2007 to about July 2008. Um, so they're able to literally declassify these, these briefing reports and, and collect data that, and then, then eventually test how week to week changes in harm civilians by, by either the coalition or the insurgents uh, led to week to week changes in the rate of information sharing. Um, I won't bore you with too many empirics, but, uh, but a, a quick, quick snapshot here. Um, we actually found evidence that um, the, the, the average change in the number of incoming tips in a province following a civilian casualty caused by coalition or insurgents in week two, if you can see that, those, those big fat blocks in the first week, um, if, if you caused a civilian casualty incident by, by the coalition, your tips were reduced. If the, if, if, if the insurgents caused a civilian casualty incident, your tips were increased. So basically, we, we thought we had direct evidence that harming civilians lead to less cooperation in the form of sharing of information on insurgents, which is really key to winning in this kind of fight. Um, so. so exercise and restraint is, is moral and it can be strategic. Um, but it's also hard. It, it's really difficult to overcome the, insti the instincts to survive and retaliate if you can. I mean, if you've literally got a 500-pound bomb at the end of your radio that you can save your platoon right now, the present, you know, trumps the future, as Deborah pointed out, it's hard to override that. Um, and what, to do it, you need effective leadership down to the small unit level. Um, here's a picture of a, of a special forces captain I, I was visiting in southern Afghanistan who you know, 26, 27 years old, he's, he's responsible for bringing security to a village where he's doing development projects by day, working with civilians, protecting the population, fighting the Taliban by night in, in a heavy kinetic fight. Um, it's, it's really tough. I mean, this is a, a tough, tough mission to have, and making these decisions is very difficult. Um, you need educated, trained, and well-led forces to succeed. Um, so, so we need to keep making these investments in the quality of, of, of the, the men and women who are serving in these kind of situations if we want the, the results we want. And encouraging, and when, when I was at the, the, the conference with, with Scott and we were able to present this data, they, uh, they said, hey, we're going to teach this in, our, in both our, ex, our ethics and our military science classes. Because that was kind of, that's exactly what we think it's relative for, or relevant to. It's, it's moral and it's part of winning. So that was uh, very, very gratifying. Um, so... In conclusion, you know, there's a great quote by Thucydides that the, the, that um, you know the strong do what they can, the weak do what they must, um, and and I think that you know in asymmetric conflict like we've experienced and expect to going forward, you know the strong also must do what they must, um, and I think protecting non-combatants, accepting greater risk in the process, is something strong states must do. It's it's both a moral obligation and in many cases it's, it's a strategic imperative. So I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Thanks so much, Joe. Um, it is difficult to follow Scott Sagan, but it's even more difficult to follow Scott Sagan and Joe Filter. I'll give it a go. Um, health workers are always the ultimate inheritors of a failed social order. Sooner or later, a breakdown in the bonds that define collective peace, that ensure social justice, will find tragic expression in the clinics, on the wards, or in the morgue. This reality has always given health workers the opportunity, if not responsibility, to bear witness, to provide a human narrative of suffering, 
particularly in what has always been the most extreme challenge for health workers, the human consequences of war. Now, most of you have seen this picture. It has traveled around the world. This is Omran Daknish, a five-year-old child who was pulled from a destroyed building uh, after it was bombed by either Syrian government or Russian aircraft in the north Syrian town of Aleppo. It's a powerful image. And many people around the world have responded to it. However, its power is magnified by the recognition that Omran's injuries were not unique or even unusual. They were typical. Omran was but one of 12 children brought in with similar injuries to the same hospital on that same day. What in fact a day that was typical for Aleppo these days. Now my comments this evening are in some ways an attempt to make sense of this photograph and of the other 11 children brought in that day who were not photographed. Both their sentimental power and their, their routine prevalence of these injuries. And to try to make sense of it in the context of a moral framework, of a moral logic that has justified and constrained the initiation and the conduct of war. Now, as powerful as this photograph is, my approach is not rooted in case, is not rooted in anecdote. It is rooted in epidemiology, a story whose contours are shaped not by individual histories, but by patterns of illness and death in large civilian populations. Just war principles, just war theory, has been around for a long time. It's been already mentioned. Its roots lie in early Christian theology, and it has evolved to incorporate the insights and new approaches of international law, human rights, and philosophy. However, its central focus has always been on the most essential human consequence of war, and that is violent death. The destruction of human life through direct exposure to combat this has long been the predominant preoccupation of just war theorists, be they saints, generals, or philosophers. Now, just war theory, just war principle, approach these issues in a kind of sequential temporal format, where you have pre-war, war, and post-war. And use ad bellum speaks to when can states initiate the use of force. Use in bello is how can force be used, the conduct of combat operations, the use of force in war settings. And more recently, a use post bellum, which is focused on disciplining the, um, uh, the provision of the elements for a just peace once the guns have fallen silent. Now, these, this framework, these principles, functionally, these aspirations, have been crafted to protect civilian populations, to protect Omran Daknish from direct violent injury and death. However, war also generates death, illness, and hardship, not through direct exposure to combat, but through the indirect effects, secondary 
to the destruction of the means of human survival, the essentials of life, the destruction of food supplies, water, shelter, healthcare systems. Now, we do have evidence regarding the importance of these indirect effects. A study was done in Darfur, at the height of the fighting, Western Sudan, um, to assess the epidemiology of mortality, and indeed they found much higher levels of mortality associated with the fighting in, in, in Darfur. However, only 15% of the increased mortality in Darfur at the height of the fighting was due to violent combat exposure. 85% were due to the indirect effects of the destructions of this social fabric of community life, of food supplies, water, whatever healthcare had been there before. Now, another study was done in the Kivus in the Eastern Congo, the height of the fighting, looking at child mortality patterns. And indeed, child mortality was much elevated in this area. But what you can see here is when you look at the causes associated with the elevation in mortality, the excess mortality, what you see is the bulk of the excess mortality was fever and malaria, diarrhea, acute respiratory infections and pneumonia, neonatal, which is newborn, uh, measles, and then a bunch of other things. These are exactly the same causes that cause mortality in these populations without war. What happened was that the gain was turned up. The absolute uh, numbers of deaths occurring from these causes was much higher in these circumstances. And this was at a time where the fighting was the highest, that the indirect mortality in these settings were far more profound and more prevalent than direct exposure to combat-related violent deaths. Now, we could talk abstractly, we could talk the epidemiology, but this is what it looks like to health workers in the real world. We have newborn illness. We have young child mortality associated with infectious diseases like malaria. We have diarrheal disease, dehydration, cholera, and of course malnutrition, frank starvation in these areas. The indirect effects of war. Now, we also know something about the scale of indirect effects in a number of different settings. The estimates are that in Iraq, civilian casualties due to indirect deaths were three times higher than for direct deaths. That the indirect mortality in Iraq was three times higher than the direct mortality. In East Timor, it was five times higher. In the Congo, nine times higher. In South Sudan, nine times higher. And in Sierra Leone, at the height of the fighting, it was 15 times higher indirect deaths relative to violent direct deaths. Now, while these numbers call attention to indirect effects, a closer look at the nature of these conflicts gives us some clues as to why these conflicts have been associated with such high indirect effects. Clues that raise an even more fundamental question regarding the utility of traditional just war framework. Pre-war, war, post-war post is the paradigmatic framework for just war theory. However, the reality of the conflicts I just mentioned, they don't generally conform to this vision of war and its aftermath. What's pre-war and post-war in the Congo? 
in northern Nigeria, in Gaza, even in Iraq. Fighting explodes and then recedes. Ceasefires are established and broken. Peace accords come and go. What it really looks like is this. Post-war in these settings becomes pre-war. You don't know. There is no reconstruction post-war, um, post-bellum phase. What you see is a kind of churning, chronic conflict that continues to generate some direct, but primarily indirect suffering and death. Displacement is profound. The destruction of normal markets, food, water, and shelter is dramatic. This here is a picture of the largest refugee camp in the world in northern Kenya, where some 350,000 people uh, currently reside, although the Kenyan government is threatening to close it shortly. It also is important to recognize that the average length of stay in a UN refugee camp worldwide now is 20 years. The idea that these are acute refugee situations is gone. What we're talking about is churning conflict, a kind of churning that just war theory must address. Just war theory must address the indirect effects. And this is not some peripheral special problem that pediatricians like myself have to deal with in conflict areas. If you list the top 20 countries in the world for young child mortality, the highest down to the 20th, 19 of those countries are in conflict or profoundly politically unstable. That about half of all young child deaths in sub-Saharan Africa are occurring in countries characterized plagued by chronic violence, political instability, and conflict. Global child health has become global child health in conflict settings. Now, as mentioned before, uh, indirect effects of war are not new. The plague of Athens killed Pericles, almost killed um, Thucydides. The Thirty Years' War, the indirect effects were catastrophic. However, however, there is something that makes the indirect effects particularly important now, perhaps more than ever before, and that is technical innovation. Technologic advances have dramatically altered our ability to measure and, most importantly, to mitigate the indirect effects of war. We have new technical capacity to assess the indirect effects using mobile technology and sophisticated epidemiologic modeling techniques. We can get a pretty good idea of what the indirect effects are in any given population at a given, any given point of time in a war. One can only imagine what the indirect effects are in Syria right now. The point being is that we can only imagine what they are because we have no system, no infrastructure to actually report, to measure and report the indirect effects. Now, I know that counting in this context seems sort of beside the point. However, there is something deeply troubling about a death that goes unnoticed because an unnoticed death implies an unnoticed life. There is a justice requirement that indirect effects be measured, that there's some accounting, some attribution, it seems essential. 
However, we can also prevent indirect deaths, indirect suffering, through remarkable advances in public health and medical care. You remember the pie graph that I showed you from the Eastern Congo. Well, the best estimates are is that 70% of that excess mortality is preventable with interventions we have now. That the excess mortality could have been prevented if these interventions were provided. Immunizations, adequate nutrition, bed nets, medications. We could have eliminated the vast majority of these indirect deaths. Now, we at Stanford and with colleagues in the Bay Area are trying to do something about this. For the first time in any university program, we are bringing together physicians and public health specialists with political scientists and global security experts, two of which, whom you've heard from uh, this evening, to create new strategies, new integrated technical and political strategies that can actually function in areas of conflict and political instability, to craft new cross-disciplinary approaches to the delivery of critical health services that recognize the political governance and security requirements of service provision in contested environments, places where organized violence and coercion dominate social and community life. Now, as I mentioned, indirect effects are not new. But my argument is based not on indirect effects, modern origins, but rather their modern neglect. The dramatic advances in our technical capabilities matter. They matter to the negotiation of justice. Because as technical capacity grows, so too does the burden on society to provide it equitably to all those in need. The death of any child is always a tragedy. But the death of any child from preventable causes is always unjust. Efficacy and justice are inextricably linked. Now I know we are living in very complicated times and many of the issues we're discussing tonight are complicated and I hope our discussion will raise some of these complications, some of these complexities. However, the failure to act to reduce both direct and indirect deaths when opportunity exists or can be created is a core dereliction. It reflects a level of complacency that is increasingly consequential and from my perspective, must not be allowed to persist in silence. The essential challenge lies in renegotiating the tension that exists between the exercise of power and the claims of the vulnerable. A tension that, as we gather here tonight, is playing out in the lives of some of the poorest and most vulnerable people on earth. Thanks. So we have some time, about 20, 25 minutes for questions. And uh, please state, uh, oh sorry, <laughs> so please state your name uh, and ask a question. Yes. Carl Pabo. I had a question. Can you wait for the microphone? There. Thank you, yeah. Carl. My name is Carl Pabo. I had a question about the different uh, levels of decision-making process that would be involved in any concerns about a just war. So the larger political decision that gets you, say, into Afghanistan into the first place, 
and the subsequent levels as you're fighting a particular battle and how you might differentiate those and think about the interplay of those levels. I'm gonna take that one first. Um, I, I can say that there's a tension in combat between you wanna decentralize decision making so you can respond to developments on the battlefield, um, but then you wanna, if you do it too much, I remember General Crystal would say you wanna decentralize to the point of discomfort, um, but you know, every, every senior commander establishes certain criteria for at what level certain decisions can be made. Um, and now technological advances allow senior leaders to, you know, we call it, it, used to be micromanagement, now it can be like nanomanagement. You can have 24-7 surveillance, you know, of, of almost any situation on the ground. Um, but it is, it's conditions-based. Uh, senior leaders in theater, this is, I'm going down probably below Scott Sagan's strategic level, but in, in a theater of war, the, the senior leader establishes certain um, decision thresholds for, for different types of decisions, like, you know, it's, I was in special operations, so to actually take the shot, if you have a, a drone looking at that, that target and, and you're gonna take the shot or not, you, you know, there's a certain level of authority that has to say, take it. I would just add, note, um, I spoke to the vets of Stanford on Friday night on Veterans Day about just war, what it makes a just warrior, and I reminded them that their job is not to decide on the justice of the war, and many will say, that's really what makes a just war. It's the cause. And I don't think that's right at all. Because many wars are caused in ambiguous situations. And we don't know sometimes the full information. It's the statesman, the politician, who must have the responsibility to decide whether the war is just or not, whether he or she will make the decision to engage. And the soldiers, unless the orders are illegal, must follow those orders. And we as citizens must not punish soldiers for going to a war that was unjustly chosen, but punish the politicians for making that decision. And we should punish soldiers only if they violate the laws of armed conflict and kill innocent civilians in a deliberate way. And the good news is that that's less common today in the American military than it was, say, in Vietnam where the My Lai Massacre and other things occurred. And indeed, Hugh Thompson, who stopped the My Lai Massacre, was often defamed at the time, ridiculed at the time, was later brought back to West Point to lecture to the soldiers, the plebes, every year about what, how important it is not to kill civilians. And certainly don't let your anger and your sense of vengeance take control over you. But we should punish our civilian leaders if they make really bad decisions, and honor the military unless they actually violate the laws of armed conflict. Yes, back here. Thank you for your presentations. Uh, today's, uh, my name is Chetan Kosla. Uh, today's uh, topic is uh, ethical choices in war and peace. Uh, other than the post-war discussion that one of you had, uh, we didn't hear a lot about the peace part. I'm wondering if any of the themes you touched upon today in ethical choices in war are particularly relevant in your opinions for the peace part. I can start on that. The pediatrician is the peace yes. guy here tonight. Yeah. Um, I guess I get uh, nominated to respond because um, in these churning conflicts, 
the transition, the distinction between war and peace is blurred. And the effort to go from just war to just peace, therefore, is blurred. And what you have is a collision of, of visions, of aspirations, between just war fighters and development specialists, people who are trying to create um, uh, economic development and social justice institutions in the same setting where you have active violence or organized violence very much part of the fabric of daily life in these communities. And in my experience, and clearly in my comments, I tried to point out that these distinctions don't make sense in these areas. And these are not marginal areas. This is the bulk of where the, at least in the child health world, where the action is. And so we need to create new kinds of strategies that are attentive to the requirements of a just peace, of human security, of development, but recognize that they are taking place in unsecured areas where violence is very real. And that's why we're trying to get the Joe Felters, the Scott Sagans, and the Paul Wises together to try to craft new strategies that are actually effective in these areas where these distinctions no longer make sense. I can make a quick yes. comment. Joe wanted to make a quick comment as well. Sure. And this is uh, following on from Paul's comment. You know, war really, I think, is better viewed as a continuum. And it's really, in the current threats that we're fighting, I mean, this is a US-centric perspective, it's really locally defined, too. And I think um, you need to be prepared for peace. Um, in, in, in the tactical operational context, your rules of engagement are going to look very different in, in war than in something short of that. And, and it's not binary war, peace. It's as the threat, the nature of the threat changes, your uh, rules of engagement, your guidance to your soldiers needs to, to, to change. I mean, even in Afghanistan, at the same time, your rules of engagement in a in a heavy kinetic fight in Helmand, you know, when I was last there in 2011, would be very different than a, you know, a much more peaceful area of, of, of Western Afghanistan. So um, I think it's important, it, even, you know, this is my perspective, at the tactical level, to, to be prepared to make sure that your guidance and, and what you're telling your soldiers to do reflects the real conditions and, and you've got the agility to change and prepare for peace and, and ramp back up. But your rules of engagement should really reflect the local conditions at the time, not what some four star sitting back in a, in a, in a built up area in the capital city says, like, you know, it should be, which isn't really informed by the reality. Margaret Levy, um, <clears throat> hi. Hi. So I'm struck by this discussion that just peace and just war require a state. And you're really mostly talking, certainly Scott and Joe, about situations where the American government or some other fairly powerful government is making a decision and doing some follow-up work. A lot of what you're talking about, Paul, is actually in conditions, a lot of the churning, not all of it, but a lot of it is around places which have effectively become stateless. They may have even started that way. So these issues of just war and just peace take on a very different kind of aura. And I'd love to hear you speak to that, because if we're going to intervene, we have to figure out about the kinds of arrangements that actually exist there and how we find leverage. Thank you, Margaret. Um, yes. Uh, it, this issue came up actually fairly recently at another academy uh, activity focused on the threat of civil wars to international order. And my focus with Michelle Barry, who's also here at Stanford, was to look at 
what is the threat conveyed by civil wars to, the, to pandemics? Um, the World Health Organization, the structures that we have to provide critical public goods in these areas are built on old notions of sovereignty. You can't go into rebel-held areas of Syria without permission of the Assad regime. Uh, it's crazy. And it's worse than having a stateless situation. These governments are often predatory. And so the local population have built up protective institutions locally to actually protect themselves from the state. It's worse than having uh, a stateless uh, issue. And in these situations, um, we need to rely on other international mechanisms um, to function to actually provide services in these areas. And that's why we have Steve Stedman and others who've worked at the UN level working with us to, to try to understand what are the mechanisms, the institutions in place to help move us beyond this archaic kind of uh, architecture. Um, we also should point out that working in these areas, there's nothing inherent in health that protects it from organized violence. We think of it as humanitarian, we walk around with white coats and stethoscopes and red crosses all over the place. That means nothing in these areas. Health becomes instrumental. And the provision of health services becomes part of the contestation of political legitimacy. And unless you really understand how instrumental it is in that fight, you become extremely vulnerable. And so to me, I'm more concerned about safety of health workers, my colleagues, in settings like this where you have no functional governance um, than I am in frank combat areas where you have a much better sense of, of what you're looking at. Um, but this is exactly what we need to address. And our hope is pediatricians and public health people, even people with experience in complicated areas, require the input of people like you, political scientists, global security people, people with real experience in the field, to try to craft far more effective strategies that can contend with the challenges of working in these areas. I'll add one point, um, not about um, states that have collapsed, but about non-state actors and their threats in the, in the nuclear area, because we, for the um, sake of reducing global warming problems, um, have a, a strong interest in promoting nuclear power around the world. But if you look at the states that are seeking to acquire nuclear power, they on average have less internal stability. They have uh, reduced um, governance uh, stability. They have increased corruption. And so we have a real tension about how do we solve and at least have some dimension of nuclear power into these areas when it's going to potentially reduce the stability or the safety in terms of protection against insider threats or terrorist or, or corruption selling of, of nuclear materials. And just to underscore the point, I'd note that um, one of the workers at the Dole nuclear power facility that had a very serious near meltdown last year was discovered to have joined ISIS. And after the Paris bombers were then disrupted in the Belgian attack, it was discovered that they had in one of their apartments films of one of the high-level officials at that facility 
So it's suspected that they were going to try to steal nuclear materials precisely because of the non-state actor wanting to have this destructive capability. So there's a question over here. <coughs> What's that? Yeah. Hi. Yeah. Um, my name is Don Knuth. I, I, I can't resist uh, maybe bringing up the elephant in the room. Uh, it, it was said that, that the present trumps the future. And, um, well, you can interpret that in several ways, but I, I, I'm, I'm quite worried by what you said, that, that more than half the people say, oh, oh let, let's, nuke two, uh, let's, let, let's nuke two million people, uh, you know, in order to save uh, uh, some thousands of American troops. And, and and then you talk about uh, uh, having to uh, having to work hard to uh, to prove your point that it's that it's better to hold back. Um, uh, so so what do you do when when, when the leader of, of of the country who's been elected uh, somehow uh, legitimately uh, it, uh, seems incapable of understanding nuances and. Uh, and uh, uh, how, how can you know how, how can we have any hope for the future in such situations? Um, well, I'll be as I'll be frank. Um, I'm worried, uh, deeply worried. Um, I think that reasonable people can disagree about whether dropping the bombs was a right thing or a wrong thing, and people can disagree about how to measure proportionality in these kinds of issues. You have to consider proportionality, but what's the ratio of risk that you should take? But it is really disturbing sometimes when, when uh, a leading political figure will call for the killing of the women and children of, of terrorists. Or when another, not uh, President-elect Trump, but, but um, another candidate for the Republican, um, Ted Cruz, probably talked about carpet bombing. Um, and I think there is some hope that the U.S. military and international law will step in and say, no, these things are illegal, and we no longer will stand for that. But it is very disturbing that there are those tendencies that come out and that much of the public would support it. So I think it behooves us to keep raising these issues, and um, I feel I have some uh, support in raising these questions, not just from scholars, but from the professional military. Soldiers don't want to be murderers. They want to be warriors. And when you talk about some of the illegal activities that people have suggested, I think the military has a, a, a right or an obligation even to, um, to speak up. Now, that's not an easy thing to do if you're inside the military and know that you could get punished for doing so, but I think it's an important thing. Yes. As the intelligence officer of my unit in World War II, I read the estimates of what the invasion of Tokyo would cause in civilian lives and in American lives. And I consider that the dropping of those two bombs was an ethical decision. It's the end of the war and it saved lives. I wonder what your reading is, yeah. Scott. Uh, as I just said, I think reasonable people disagree on this. My own view is that when you're faced with enormous um, trade-offs of killing of GIs versus soldiers, it behooves you to try to figure out, is there an alternative not to have to do that? 
So the alternative in 1945 was to accept something less than unconditional surrender, to let the Japanese keep the emperor as a figurehead. And that's actually what Henry Stimson, Secretary of War, suggested to Truman before the Potsdam. And Truman and James Byrne, the new Secretary of State, rejected that, calling for unconditional surrender. We know now that even after the dropping of the two bombs, the Japanese refused to surrender until James Burns sent a private letter saying, the future of the emperor will be decided upon by the Japanese people. And that got Hirohito privately to tell his family, the emperor's system is going to maintain, as it will be maintained, and he then joined the peace party. Now we can't know because it's a counterfactual what would have happened had we done that prior to the dropping of the bomb. Could be that he wouldn't have felt that we were going to do it. It could have been that that could have saved the day. The tragedy, I think, is that we didn't find out. I think there was a hand back there. Sorry. Hi, um, Gilat Bahal. Um, so my question is, um, there's been this practice in um, Iraq and Afghanistan, I know, and perhaps in other situations where uh, the US military was involved um, of giving condolence payments or other forms of monetary compensation um, to um, civilian casualties and their families. Um, and I'm wondering if you can comment about the relationship between these forms of monetary compensation and the ethics of war. Do you see that as something that promotes ethics of war? Do you see that as something that perhaps prevents accountability in some ways? Thank you. Sure, I, I don't think anything you can pay off a family that's lost a loved one, but it, it, is, it is a nice gesture to, to acknowledge that you know, you've lost, you've lost someone and we were going to make, make some gesture. So it's, these payments do help with, with relations in the local population that we try to tailor. There's a lot of, in some places, there's, it's almost like a tribal custom when, when, there's, when there's a death that, you know, not just from the hands of an outside occupying power. But um, so I think it's, it's certainly not going to make everything right, but, but I think it's, it's a good gesture and I think it's something that we, we, we did in good faith and it had some positive results in maintaining the relationships we wanted. Tobias Wolf, I want to thank you for this extraordinary evening. Uh, Scott, I know you've written about this, uh, and, uh, uh, and I'd, I'd be curious to have you talk a little bit about just what stands between the president and the use of, of, of nuclear weapons. What is to stop him uh, f uh, from using them uh, uh, on his own initiative, uh, giving an order uh, for their use, uh, what safeguards stand between it, what councils can prevent it, uh, if any? Um, it's a good question, and the answer is disturbing. Um, the system has been set up not to have checks and balances, but rather to have very prompt either preemption in the height of the Cold War or quick retaliation for the sake of deterrence. And that creates both risks of accidental war, if it's a false warning, as we've had a couple incidents, or creates a risk that a president could either threaten or actually use nuclear weapons. As long as it's not illegal, that is, the military says their plans follow proportionality and are targeting military targets and civilians are collateral damage, the military is obligated and feels it should. And we have one of the essays 
in this essay by Bob Kaler, the former STRATCOM commander, and we have another former STRATCOM commander, Jim Ellis, in the audience today, they feel they're obligated to follow this because that's following orders. Now, we do have some evidence that suggests if the military thinks the president has become unhinged for whatever reason, that they might try to do something different. The two pieces of evidence cut in different ways. One, we know that it's actually not the military, it's the Secretary of Defense, but that's the only really ability to stop something, and it's only temporary. During the height of the Watergate when, uh, affair, when Richard Nixon was suspected to be drinking heavily, had asked Henry Kissinger to pray on the White House uh, carpet with him, uh, James Schlesinger um, told the uh, JCS that if you get an order from the president to use nuclear weapons, or do anything with nuclear weapons, contact me first. That is an extra constitutional thing that he did. It's a brave thing and I think a prudent thing, but it's not constitutional. The only other case that we know of is um, Melvin Laird, who was asked by, again, Richard Nixon to um, follow the madman theory. I want the Russians to think that I'm just mad enough that I'm going to use nuclear weapons in Vietnam. So he told the Joint Chiefs of Staff through Secretary, order the Joint Chiefs to put U.S. nuclear weapons on a high state of alert. Take bombers, fly them up against the Soviet border. Load them up in conspicuous places around the country. Send out the submarines. And the Secretary of Defense thought the madman theory was sort of mad, because it is. He didn't think it wasn't going to be effective. And it's pretty dangerous to transfer these things around. So he told the president, sir, we're having an exercise right now. We can't do it. We're in the middle of the exercise. Everyone's really busy. And he hoped that President Nixon would calm down and would think reasonably. Nixon pushed back with Henry Kissinger fully supporting him. And the next week, Melvin Laird had to choose either I resign or I go forward with this. And he did go forward with it. Two bombers almost crashed outside Soviet airspace with thermonuclear weapons on board. Safety problem, because they hadn't been trained to fly like that in a long time. And at least in one base I discovered, they didn't have anybody to load up the weapons, who was trained to load up nuclear weapons, who had been certified. They weren't told, we're doing this because the president thinks he wants to signal that he's crazy and we'll start bombing North Vietnam. They were told to go on alert because there's a nuclear war that might begin. So they had guys who were not trained. Personnel just going out, taking nuclear weapons and loading them up. This was not a smart thing to do, but the Secretary of Defense felt he had to do it. Now, that wasn't using nuclear weapons. It was dangerous. I think a similar dynamic could occur if, in an unprovoked way, a president said he wanted to use nuclear weapons. There could be some pushback, but ultimately, it's the president who would make the decision. So we have time for one final question. Last, last words. Yes, Steve. Steve. Steve Krasner. So I guess this is a, a question for Joe or Scott. So it, it seems to me that there are some elements of just war theory, especially the distinction, the sharp distinction between civilians and the military, which can lead to more people being killed. So if you're an insurgent, and we know that insurgents do this, you will hide yourself among civilians. You will try to either increase civilian casualties, um, or you'll hope that you won't be attacked. So given, you know, just war theory might have made sense in the medieval period when you can make this sharp distinction between civilians and combatants, does it, is it actually the best possible set of rules that we could have 
in the contemporary period. So I, and the argument actually we make with, with, with I try to make with Jake in, in, in our piece for, for Daedalus is, it, it does make sense on a, on a moral level, but, and you hit it on the head, um, Steve, when given that insurgents can hide among the population, they're not standing out there in a uniform and you can identify them, this identification challenge is so hard, you need the local population to say, this is the insurgent, this is the bad guy, this is where he lives. And if you lose the, the, the relationship with the population, which often occurs when, when there's collateral damage, then, then that's diminished. But did I get your question wrong? I'm sorry. The question is when it's not instrumental. But, but I mean, it's, and I hope I get your question, but I think it's, 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 it's strategic. It's, it's killing civilians. I mean, so General Crystal's command sergeant major with this, with this gruff 34-year Ranger veteran, he just... Boy, he just, he was not afraid to go out and kill the enemy, but he said, hey, he would tell the soldiers when we'd go out and try to sell courageous restraint, this is part of winning, okay? I, I want to kill as many Taliban as possible, and if we kill fewer civilians, we're going to find out what more Taliban are, and we're going to be able to kill more of them. And it was kind of, it was instrumental, I guess. It is always easier, I believe, to follow just war doctrine when it also serves your strategic interests. The problem is yeah. when it doesn't serve your strategic interests. And... Michael Walzer added a very nice and important addition to the traditional view by saying you should take, accept some risk. Soldiers should take some risk, point that Joe's making. I think we should broaden that and that our society should take some risk. There may be times where it does not serve our narrow strategic interest at this time to protect civilians in another country. But we should do it anyway. We should accept some risk that would take longer to win a war. There may be some extreme circumstances where supreme emergency kicks in and we don't. But on the whole, our society, not just our soldiers, should accept some risks in the name of trying to protect civilian adversaries abroad. It doesn't mean that we should um, abandon just war doctrine or laws of armed conflict if we have tactical setbacks. Because without this rules, we end up with a face of battle without any rules of war whatsoever, and that is, is uh, an ugly condition of war that I think we want to try to avoid. So let me uh, thank Deborah, Scott, Joe, and Paul for a really thoughtful, interesting discussion. Uh, we have a lot to think about. Uh, your uh, presentations uh, blend uh, values, um, evidence, analysis, and policy prescriptions in a way that uh, reflects the Academy's commitment uh, to advance uh, the common good in search of a more just and humane world uh, at peace. Uh, the presentations, uh, the probing questions from the audience, the thoughtful and civil discussion we've just had is what the Academy is all about, uh, and it makes us proud uh, to be members. And it reminds us that the Academy's ability to bring multiple perspectives to bear on challenging issues is needed now more than ever. I found it all interesting. I um, just want to Say personally, the um, indirect uh, death toll um, I think is an issue which uh, the public and policymakers really need to face up to. Uh, technology 
can enable us to estimate or even model the indirect effects uh, even before uh, violence begins or as it does. And I think uh, we who have that technological ability and that analytical ability have the moral obligation uh, to make uh, this indirect effect uh, uh, known uh, and maybe that will have some deterrent effect. Uh, let us all now uh, enjoy uh, a drink together to talk some more, meet. I'd love to say hello to everybody here. And let me now adjourn the uh, 2047th stated meeting of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Thanks for listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. Follow us on Twitter at FSI Stanford or visit our website at fsi.stanford.edu for more events and expertise from the world of international studies.